Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Last week, as I just mentioned, we looked at Acts, Acts chapter 6 and 7 as we work our way at least through the first part, the first half of Acts probably before we hit the fall and, and the series may change. And in that last week, the calling of the first Christian lay leaders were called into the Jerusalem church. And uh, we looked at how they chose seven people, again, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit as opposed to casting lots. And we saw how Stephen was one of those who was chosen. And we saw how Stephen, an ordinary person like you and I, was obedient to God's call in his life and uh, in the process raised the ire of the Sanhedrin, the high court, and they had him arrested. And they were so upset they resorted to the extreme punishment of having him stoned to death and did the same thing they did to Jesus in trumping up charges and bribing witnesses and so on uh, in order to do away with Stephen. And of course we saw that uh, the Holy Spirit inspired the same kind of defense that uh, Jesus had and, and uh, Paul had and, and it's kind of this repeating story through the book of Acts of how they keep going back to saying this is what this is the story. It's always been the story. Jesus is the end of that story as far as the Old Testament goes and now into the New Testament. And now we're moving forward. And uh, by the way, you are the ones who did in the Messiah who we've all been waiting for. And of course, that always, as you might guess, raises the ire and uh, leads to a lot of conflict. Um, so we concluded with the first verse of chapter 8, which dramatically introduces us to the one who, most surprisingly, if you were there at the time, will be the main character of the rest of the book of Acts, uh, but also marks a turning point in the life of the early church. And Saul approved of their killing him, being Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Do you recall at the outset of this series, in Acts 1, verse 8, in what were Jesus' last words recorded on earth? Do you remember what they were? Those last words. He reminded the apostles of his great commissioning of them and of us all when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And where? And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But that hadn't happened so far. So far, the early church has been completely centered in Jerusalem, and it seemed with the stoning of Stephen, as I mentioned, that free license suddenly became uh, you know, open season on believers, on followers of Christ, and it followed then a whole series of dreadful events. Not only that, but a Pharisee was taking it on himself as a personal mission to eradicate believers from the face of the earth. From a human perspective, this is, looks like very, very bad news. Uh, but from a divine perspective, it's about producing a much greater good and actually fulfilling the promise and the command that Jesus gave. So thousands now of believers, of new Christians, who made up this new church in Jerusalem, now even begin to fulfill this great commission and find themselves fleeing from this, this persecution to the surrounding regions. And you guessed it, the first places they go, Judea and Samaria. So first they're in Jerusalem, now they're fleeing to Judea and Samaria. Just as Jesus commanded them in Acts 1.8, they begin to live out now the assignment to be his witnesses. And now the rest of the chapter unfolds. We find out that it will go to the ends of the earth. God used the persecution of his followers to keep them from becoming complacent and to spread his, his salt, his word, his, the good news, further into regions where lost people, lost people. Lost has to be one of the saddest words in our English language, doesn't it? Lost. Where lost people still needed to hear and receive the truth. A little historical perspective helps us understand why this was such a big deal. Up until this point in time, throughout the entire Old Testament, if someone outside the Jewish faith, who became known as a Gentile later on, so someone outside the Jewish faith, someone who would be called a Gentile, if they wanted to know the God of Israel, they had to go to Jerusalem. That was it. There was no other place to get to know him. That's where the church was. That was the only place where the church was. You had to go to Jerusalem. 
They had never, there had never been the thought that they could actively take their faith on the road to others. It was come to Jerusalem. If anything, the Jews thought that faith in God was more or less their exclusive right as his chosen people. So the Spirit now forces them to go out where there are no Jews, go out to the Gentiles, beginning with this persecution which drove them now out of Jerusalem whether they liked it or not. And ironically, by trying to rub out this upstart faith as it became known, people of the way, following Jesus the Messiah, the prosecutors actually, and the persecutors, both of them, actually helped the church grow by spreading it around. There's an interesting clue to what was really going on in the very first words used in the first verse. The word scattered. The word scattered comes from the same root word in Greek as the word seed. Isn't that interesting? So the hidden picture that God is kind of telling us here as we understand the words in this, in this first verse, the hidden picture is one of God spreading now, scattering, spreading his seed, spreading his word on the ground, all over the ground, all over the place. No, not just in Jerusalem, but now spreading out, spreading everywhere. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Dr. Luke wants us to understand the tremendous upheaval this was and provides us with both ends of the spectrum briefly in the next two verses. In verse 2, he says, almost as a digression, godly men, which is interesting, godly men, again, you know, kind of stepping out in faith, they were, would be identified as being godly men if they would take care of Stephen's body. Remember, Saul is watching. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Luke has used the word godly before to indicate believers, so we can assume that these are also believers. Think about the persecution so far. Peter and James arrested, let off with a light rebuke. Church rejoices. Next of all, apostles are arrested, punished with severe lashing, as I mentioned, but all come back to the church alive, and once again, the church rejoices. But Stephen does not return from his arrest, and now the church mourns. If there was any doubt that some would meet the same fate as the one they were following, Jesus, this has now been soberly erased, hasn't it? This is for keeps. You can just imagine how this is just kind of going deep within, and this is for keeps. And it sets up the contrast between this verse and the next. So they're mourning, they've buried Stephen, but Saul, on the other hand, was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off both men and women and committed them to prison. With the stoning of Stephen, the gloves have come off. What had first been grudgingly tolerated with the apostles was now kind of an open and vigorous persecution. Almost like a starting gun had gone off somewhere, and the murder of Stephen seemed to kind of produce this kind of bloodlust, if you will. And Saul zealously takes up the mission. The word translated ravaging, by the way, carries with it in the Greek the image of wild boars destroying a vineyard. So imagine this perfectly serene vineyard and then a whole bunch of wild boars just ravaging through it, ravaging it, and they would eat it and destroy it. There'd be nothing left standing after the wild boars had gone through. That's what Paul was trying to do to the Christian church. And he contrasts this ravaging, this violence, this kind of uh, mission to do away with Christians on one side with the fact that there's this funeral going on for Stephen and mourning. Having provided us with the general scene, now these two contrasts, Luke now takes us to a second series of contrasts that reveal even more about the heart of God to us and lead us further into the transition taking place, which in turn not only leads into the story of Paul, but eventually takes the gospel to the ends of the earth where lost people still needed to hear the truth, and that would include us. And once again, like Stephen, Dr. Luke focuses on another one of the seven that were chosen as these lay leaders. Another servant volunteer leader in the church under the apostles. His name, Philip. So we have now an obedient servant named Philip. We're going to see how obedient he is coming up. A large group of the scattered believers have made their way into Samaria. As they are now being persecuted, they've gone into Samaria. And this is where we meet up with Philip. Another brief history lesson, 
Bear with me a little bit today so you understand the context here. Israel had been divided into three regions by this point in time. Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and Judea, as you can see from the slide there, in the south. Earlier on, the region of Samaria had been conquered for a time by Israel's arch enemy, the Assyrians. And during their occupation, there was intermarrying between the Assyrians and the Jews, and the mixed, rate that, mixed race that resulted were known as the Samaritans from Samaria, right? They were considered impure half-breeds by the supposedly pure Jews of Judea, and it's not an understatement to say that the two groups hated each other, as illustrated in Jesus' uh, parable about the Good Samaritan, right? So what people would do is they would take the long way around if they were going from Judea to Galilee or vice versa. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would walk a long route around it, as that red line indicates, to get to the, where they needed to go. That's how much they did disliked um, we would maybe, maybe we would put the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in that category, right? <laughs> would you go to their stadium or would you walk around it, right? It's the same kind of idea. It's like, oh, not a chance. I don't want to be caught dead in Samaria. I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk around it. And think about that. They're walking. It's not like, ah, eh, so what's another half hour in the car? No. Of course, Jesus himself ministered in Samaria, and he intentionally listed it as one of the places the gospel needs to go. So... Guess what? It's going. Which brings us to Philip. He's aware of the need there, and he goes to the capital city there, by coincidence, also named Samaria, and begins to minister to them, proclaiming the Messiah, and there's a great response. Philip finds himself in the center of, this, of, the, of an incredible spiritual activity with many people transformed by the power of God. It's a Bible. It's a revival. See, it can't be a revival because there is no re. This is the first time they've heard about it, right? So don't send, if you want to send notes, Pastor Stefan, send, send, that's who you need to send the notes to. I know it's not a word, okay? But it's a revival. It's a revival because there's no re. Have you ever thought about the English language and all the re stuff when there's no first thing? Anyway, how can it be a revival if there was no revival? Well, this is it, folks. This is the Bible. They're not doing something over. They're not recommitting. They're not returning. This is their first exposure to the gospel. And the seed is being sown, and they're coming forward in droves. It's a Bible. It's the precursor of going viral, isn't it? No, it's not. I made that up. The point is, Philip is ministering to the multitudes of people. It's amazing. People are responding. But Luke wants to set up a contrast for us. So let's now get up close and personal with Philip's personal evangelism with just two people. One of them is Simon, a sorcerer, who is not surprisingly deceiving many people who are choosing to follow him. This is important to understand. He wants people to follow him and his claims. It's, it's what he's, this is his scam. In contrast to that, Philip is giving the message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God, which results in both men and women choosing to follow Jesus and be baptized. Okay, so imagine you're Simon now. You see, hey, where are all you people going? You're, I want you to crowd around me. Oh, we're going off to hear what Philip is saying. This makes an impression on Simon, and he's amazed by the miracles and signs that Philip, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is performing. And, he, and so... He follows along. He follows along and he believes and is baptized. So now the tables are turned and he finds himself, rather than being in competition with Philip, actually choosing to follow Philip. He's the first recorded spiritual groupie in the Bible. But the wording of these verses suggests that Luke wanted us to see that Simon was primarily interested in the power being exhibited by the Holy Spirit being in these people rather than his relationship with Christ himself. So see if you can kind of pick that out in some of the words here. See, Jesus had encountered many people like Simon. In, June, in John chapter 2, it says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many people began to trust him. Look at that word, began to 
began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. It's kind of a sad indictment on us, isn't it? This wisdom proves itself as in a few verses, the genuineness of Simon's conversion is called into question when he wants to pay the apostles so he can have their power too. Basically, hey, that's really cool. I would like to be able to do that too. Imagine all the people I could help if I could do those same, if I had the, if I had the power, right? This leads to a very strong rebuke from Peter, including such words as, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but perish, heart not right, wickedness, evil thoughts, bitterness, and held captive by sin. Too bad Peter felt restrained and not telling it like it is. Whew. Man, you wouldn't want to get this anytime, anywhere, that kind of rebuke. We know the words had an impact on Simon, but we're left with a question mark because we don't know exactly what he does with him. This is where he leaves the story. But notice that he doesn't pray for himself in kind of a confession. He says, Peter, you pray for me. Leaves us with this huge, big question mark. But there's a strong warning for our, here for us as well. It's a dangerous game to play around on the periphery of belief in Jesus, but never kind of say yes and be committed to it totally. Never completely submitting to his lordship in our lives. Never having a real relationship with God, but instead hoping for a kind of get out of jail free card at the end. Just by associating, just by attending church, just by kind of being around those who we would call zealots or zealous who truly believe. In terms we've been using in this series, it's like giving your sort of instead of your yes. Contrast this with the next individual. Right in the middle of what was proving to be a very successful evangelistic campaign in Samaria, an angel appears to Philip and tells him to head south on the road to Gaza. Now notice, that's basically it. Here's your instructions. Head south on the road to Gaza. Gaza was a city on the road from Jerusalem to Egypt. Quick time out here again. Generally speaking, the English language is, is kind of a specific kind of language. It doesn't lend itself often to a word meaning two different things and a picture to boot all at the same time. It either means this or it means this, not both things combined. But often in other languages, that's exactly what happens. One word tells a whole story, paints a whole picture. German, for instance, on the other hand, would be a contrast to, to that more like the Greek, which did that, of course, and that's why I keep talking about it. I can't tell you how many times I've been explaining something for some one time, and I've been going on and on in English with some of my German friends, some of you who are them, and they will say, oh, Pontok, or something like that. And I go, uh, I just went for like five minutes, you got one word? Oh yeah, that means all that you just said, that one word, that's it. I go, huh, wish I had just one word like that instead of painting this whole big long picture. All that I've just said is encapsulated in that one German word. Yeah, it's the same way in the Greek. It's also, by the way, why every Bible translator over the years has so much trouble coming up with one single English word to match the one Greek or Hebrew word in the original text. It's one of the reasons why there's been paraphrases made of the Bible so that an English translator can actually put a whole big paragraph like I would have done to explain the one Hebrew or Greek word that said all that, but I couldn't just say it in one English word. We're going to see this issue a couple of times as we move on. I just, if you thought that was something irrelevant, it's not. And here's the first. The Greek for go south in this verse can also be translated at noon. Go south and at noon. They would seem to be diverging, but often and most often it was used to mean both. Go south at noon. So this makes the assignment even a little bit more bizarre for Philip. Philip is supposed to go, without any other instruction, go down a desolate desert road in the middle of the day because an angel said so. And no self-respecting, no sane person would surely be found out in the middle of the desert in the noonday sun. See, there's an important side lesson here that Luke wants us to get. 
The angel could have done this mission uh, himself. The angel could have gone straight to whoever Philip's going to have the appointment with, but that's not God's plan for building his kingdom, is it? His kingdom advances not through the appearance of angels that light up people's hair or whatever, but through the activity of ordinary Christ followers like you and me. God's plan, weirdly enough, and I wonder about it sometimes, is to do it in partnership with us. Now, I don't know you about you, but that sobers me big time. Because as followers of Christ, we're intended to be the carriers of God's good news, and we're supposed to be open to be assigned however and wherever God would have us go to do the spreading of his word. Now, it's a measure of the ordinary man, Philip, before us, that there isn't even a hint of, what now? Can't you see all these people? I'm leading them to the Lord. There's, we're getting a Bible going here. It's fantastic. Are you kidding me? Now? That can't be right. That just can't be right. Look what's happening here. At least give me a few days to wrap things up. At this, per, at this point, personally, I might have had a few clarifying questions for the angel, but not Philip. The next four words reveal what kind of servant and follower Philip was. It simply says, so he started out. So he started out. That'd be a great thing for a tombstone, wouldn't it? I started out. Jesus said, go. I started out. I'm still going. Often, in fact, I would say almost all the time, our God will give an instruction without painting the whole picture for us. Isn't that true? And I think that's a good thing, isn't it? I'm willing to guess that most of you can think of a time when you said something to the effect of, if I knew where this path of my life was going to lead me, I think I might have checked out somewhere along the way. I told you last week of my own experience coming here to Southland, having no clue what was in store for me. Frankly, I can think of virtually every defining moment in my walk with the Lord, and I can look back on it with retrospect now and see that he was making changes, but if he was going to challenge me, if he was going to bring commitment to the fore in my life, if he was going to make me pay some cost for it, then it was better that I didn't know in advance the whole story. All he was asking me for in that moment was, will you obey this? And that's what he's done to Philip. Will you obey this? Just get on the road. And off he goes. See, divine appointments can't happen without an obedient Christ follower. Someone who will listen first, I've got an appointment for you, and then obey without delay. If Philip, we have to think about this, if Philip had said, that's a great idea, I'm not sure why you want me to go on that road, in two days I'll have things wrapped up and I'll be able to go, he would have completely missed this opportunity that God had so carefully orchestrated. In order to make this appointment, you need to leave now. So Philip starts out. Now next we meet the other person in the story, the Ethiopian eunuch. If, if I was this Ethiopian, I would sort of in heaven now be grimacing a little bit every time you bring up my name, because it's not my name, but everybody calls him the Ethiopian eunuch, right? How about we just call him the Ethiopian, okay? As guys, we can understand and kind of go with this, right? Scholars believe that this man came from a kingdom that encompassed what is now present-day Ethiopia and the Sudan. So we're going to put a map up there and kind of show you that whole area, if we can get it up there, that shows that whole area of, of Africa and where, so that the big red and sort of red-green outline on the right-hand side there, that was the area that was then called Ethiopia. Now it would be Ethiopia and Sudan. And it was considered back in this day as the uttermost ends of the earth. Exploration hadn't gone beyond that. That was like, as far as you can get away from Jerusalem, it was this area. This is to the ends of the earth. Interesting, right? So now we've gone from Judea to Samaria, and now we're actually going to the ends of the earth as they knew it back in that day. Scholars believe that that's where he came from, and that's ancient Ethiopia. So, we're about to see now the news of Jesus make a huge geographic leap of some 2,000 kilometers 
to what was then the ends of the earth. In addition, this man, the Ethiopian eunuch, was most likely of black color, black skin. And this second leap is that the message of Christ is now going to expand ethnically as well as geographically, proving that our faith is inclusive for all races, and this is going to continue through the book of Acts. Now for the eunuch part. Normally, a eunuch was a term to describe a person who had been castrated. And the person was to put a man in, the, the reason was to put him in charge of the king's harem while making sure that the queen, on one hand, would not be tempted to flirt with him, etc., or on the other hand, that the eunuch would be tempted to flirt with the harem. Okay, so that was the principal reason. But the word eunuch also had another meaning. It also was used to mean a court official. It is likely, once again, that both definitions of this word apply. And he was both a court official and had been castrated. What we do know for certain is that this man had an impressive job. His responsibility was to oversee the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. And his status is evident by the simple fact that he has a chariot. He has a horse-drawn chariot. That would be like having a Lamborghini now. Extremely rare in those days. You had to be way up the ladder to get a chariot and a horse. But what intrigues me most about this guy is that he clearly was a God-fearing man. Luke doesn't tell us anything specific about his religious background except that he was returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Remember, he had to go to Jerusalem to get the faith where he had gone to worship. Apparently, he was already convinced that the God of Israel was the one true God. And he'd gone to the Holy Temple, and that was the distance, as I said, about 2,000 kilometers one way in his chariot. Yet he is still searching. He's on his way home. He had not received the answers to his most pressing questions. And he's left with this kind of spiritual thirst or hunger. And true to form, our God responded to the Ethiopian's need. It reminds me of the verse, a verse, of a verse in 2 Chronicles where it says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Can you just imagine God's eyes roaming through the earth and spying this Ethiopian in this chariot who's searching, who's honestly like thirsty for finding out what is the truth about God and about Jesus and the roaming eyes of God see that and go, okay, I need to have an intersection happen here with somebody who can help you. Do you see the heart of God here? Philip has been reaching out to multitudes, like a crusade kind of thing, and there are throngs, throngs of people are coming, yet God calls him to leave that so he might reach the one. If you've ever tamed the thought that you don't matter to God, this should dispel that notion forever. He cares about the one. He cares about you. You have a value to him that cannot be estimated because he gave his son in your place. He has cared, he is caring, and he will care more for you than you can imagine, and nothing is ever going to stop that because God doesn't change. God always responds to the openness of one earnestly seeking him. His eyes are roaming the whole earth looking for that. And he sees that appointment needs to happen. And he sends Philip to answer this man's questions. Because Philip obeyed, he's in a, a position then to get the second instruction. So he doesn't know anything more than start walking down the road. He's walking down the road. And this time he gets a message from the Holy Spirit, an act of the Holy Spirit, what we're calling our series title. The Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Remember again, God has not given Philip all the instructions from the get-go. You need to leave now, head south, through the middle of the day, because you're going to meet exactly at the right time, a guy in a chariot, and you're going to lead him to the Lord, and then he's going to get baptized. There's the mission. No. All it was at first was start walking down the road. Will you start walking down the road? And then he says, now, see, there's a chariot. I want you to go up to that chariot. Just go to the chariot. Next step. 
Philip is a lowly Greek-speaking disciple layperson, and now he's to join the chariot of a highly influential, wealthy, educated man, and on top of that, ethnically different. This is a huge cultural chasm that Philip is walking over as he approaches the chariot. A very bold risk for Philip to take here. But God's instruction was the, in the form of an imperative. The whole kind of thrust of the language was like, now, this is it, you gotta go up to that chariot now. And in effect, the words meant that Philip was told to join himself, to glue yourself to that chariot. Do not let that chariot go. Glue yourself to it. There was an imperative need in this instance for Philip to be face-to-face with someone who had questions, someone who was lost, someone who needed to be saved. Can I digress for a moment here? The sad truth is that the longer most of us are followers of Christ, the less time we spend with people outside the faith. Isn't that true? What drives this, I think, is kind of almost a natural thing, is that the longer we're believers, the more comfortable we are just being around other people who follow Christ. It's, it's kind of a holy huddle kind of a thing. We find it so much more easy. It just feels good to be in people who believe the same as we do. We don't have to mess with being salt among people who might not agree with us. People who might actually exhibit behavior that we can't condone or use language that makes us feel uncomfortable. But in the early days of the church, believers were incredibly passionate about those who didn't know Jesus yet. The fact that someone was lost sunk deep into their very soul. They're lost. When is the last time you engaged in a spiritual conversation with someone and you knew that God had you right there at that moment, in that moment, in that time, in that place, by divine appointment to talk about what matters most in life? Are we hiding our complacency among ourselves, counting on other people to be salt? Oh, that's not me. That's not my gift. That's somebody else's gift. I'll serve God in other ways. Jesus doesn't leave us any kind of, of room to maneuver in this. God says to you and he says to me, go to that chariot and stay near it. So what is your equivalent of the chariot? Maybe it's people who live right beside you in your neighborhood. Maybe it's people that you work with every day. Maybe it's people you go to school with. You and I cannot hope to have any impact if we don't have contact with those who don't know the Lord. So let me ask you again, where is the chariot that you're supposed to get glued to? Who is really high on your list for intentional get-togethers so you can get to know each other? Are you moving towards non-Christians with passion these days, as the early church did? Or has your flame dwindled and your heart grown a little colder and maybe even more fearful? I think God wants us to, every single one of us to have two or three names just to jump to our mind when we think of those we're glued to, that we're staying near, those who we're spending, we're spending time with and praying diligently for and steering our conversations and our time towards spiritual conversations. Well, let's get back to the story. The Ethiopian is sitting down. Did you notice that? Ethiopian is sitting down. He's taking a break because when you drove a chariot, you stood. So he's going to be standing for 2,000 kilometers. Every so often, I'm going to take a break, particularly at midday. I'm going to, it's hot. I'm going to sit down. I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to sit on the back. It's like, you know, a, a bumper party. He's going to sit on the back tailgate and just kind of just take a break for a little while. Philip runs up. Do you love this path? <laughs> There wasn't anything about running necessarily. Just glue yourself to the chariot. Oh, he runs up. It's like, okay, here I go. And he runs up to the chariot. The chariot's sitting still. And here's him reading from the Old Testament. The Ethiopian, as he gets close, those words sound familiar. That sounds like Isaiah. And notice how Philip begins. He listens. He doesn't jump into the passenger seat and start drawing a bridge illustration for the guy. He listens first. In any of our encounters with non-believers, we have to be great listeners with the Holy Spirit's help trying to discern what's important to this person, where are they coming from, and respond authentically in the area that they're interested in. Paul observed this, this man was reading out loud. That was, sorry, did I say Paul? Philip observed this. That was a very common practice in those days. From a scroll, often when you sat down, you read it out loud. 
And this was a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. This finance minister was reading a passage of scripture that as God would have it planned, could not have been a more perfect scripture to start a discussion with. Chapter 53 of Isaiah, describing the suffering of Christ. And I imagine Philip overcoming his natural hesitation to approach this powerful man, offering up one of those quick catch-all prayers to God that we've all done. <laughs> like, what am I gonna say? Help me now, I need wisdom, I need to kinda know what to say. And his next words revealed that God answered his prayer. Because Philip asked the Ethiopian the most natural question. And it's a great clue for us. Often we just think we need to charge in and do the bridge illustration. Or, oh, I've got all the answers. Just let me lay it all out for you. No, he begins with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? From this encounter, we learn that we've got to start where people are at in their search. Obviously, the eunuch was already investigating spiritual matters, and Philip began to wisely engage him in a series of questions and answers. After Philip asked his simple question, the Ethiopian invites him to join him in the chariot. He voices his need for someone, like, how can I? How can I understand this? I got nobody to help me here. Nobody. I'm going back to Ethiopia. What, like, what? He voices his need for what? For someone for someone to help him face to face, answer my questions, talk to me, engage with me. Clearly he was open and receptive. Philip had no need to push this conversation. Reminds me of a, a story I heard once of a, a young salesman, and I've used this phrase too, so this spoke to me. The young salesman was disappointed about losing a big sale. And as he talked with his sales manager, he lamented with these words which I've used way too often, I guess it just proves you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him, you can't make him drink. The manager replies, son, take my advice. Your job is not to make him drink. Your job is to make him thirsty. So it is with us. Our job is not to make someone drink or say yes. Our job is to make them thirsty. Thirsty for the gospel, thirsty for the answers, thirsty for the reason that they exist, thirsty for the purpose they have in their lives. Just to make them thirsty. And it began what I assume was a fascinating and thorough discussion about how Jesus Christ was the one that Isaiah was describing. The one who was crucified like a lamb and led to the slaughter. <clears throat> Philip must have told the finance minister all about Jesus being the Messiah, how he miraculously rose from the dead, what it means to repent, what it means to be baptized, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Luke chooses not to record the whole conversation, but he just jumps, jumps to the end and he says, figure it out. I mean, it's obvious. What happened from what happens next? We know that Philip was fully prepared to share the good news about Jesus. He's first listened to the Spirit's promptings to go down the road, or actually the angel's promptings. Then he listens to the Spirit's promptings about going up to the chariot, so he's obeyed again. Then he's listened even as he's approached the chariot, and now he's asking really good questions, and then he enters into a dialogue with the person, with the Ethiopian, based on how the Ethiopian has responded to what his need is, rather than, oh, hang on, I've got it written down right here, what to say? No, he's actually just responding to what the Ethiopian is, is reading and talking about. And in this amazing encounter, Philip didn't even have to be the one to aim for a response. This Ethiopian was so ripe for conversion, he truly got it almost immediately, it seems. And when he was ready to step over the line of faith, he proves it because in the distance he spies some water. And he asks, is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Well... Clearly, Philip was satisfied this guy had confessed belief and repentance because he immediately agrees, oh, there's some water, you're right, let's go. Now, some of us may be thinking, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on a sec, Pastor. This seems a little quick. Doesn't this man need to grow up more in the faith? Doesn't he need to join a, you know, a small group first, learn some more about Scripture, about what he's actually doing, why he's actually being baptized? And clearly, the answer in Scripture from this passage is no, he doesn't. The pattern over and over again in the book of Acts, and there's several more coming up, is immediate baptism upon conversion. So why is that not necessarily the norm in our day? Well, first of all, we're not necessarily walking through the desert and 
there's some water standing right beside us. I think some people really do think they have to get their spiritual act together, on the other hand, before taking the public step of baptism. But this is really a misunderstanding of what baptism demonstrates, because then it's about us, right? Then baptism becomes about where my standing is with God. What, what I've done, it becomes almost performance-related, like I've measured up, therefore I should be baptized. If attaining some level of Christian perfection in our lives was a prerequisite, honestly, we'd all fall short, and Pastor Chris and others would look a little foolish standing up here in the tank by themselves. Baptism, rather, is a step that acknowledges the grace and forgiveness of Christ. It's a celebration of conversion. It's very symbolic when a person goes down in the water. They're reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection. We talk about that every time we have baptisms here. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. So waiting until we grow up in the faith is not all necessary nor helpful as long as we're genuine in our desire to follow Jesus. Now, other people hesitate to be baptized out of fear. We've had some quivering people in the water. I've had quivering people in the water, but I can assure you, I've been at it myself for many, many years, and I checked with those who've been around Southland since the very beginning, and we've never drowned anybody. <laughs> Yet. Some others, frankly, struggle with pride. I don't know if it's the fact that you come out of the water looking like a drowned rat, or maybe it's the step of admitting to other people publicly that you need a savior, or that you think they would be shocked to learn you've never been baptized. You've kind of been this covert Christian, assume I've been baptized and I'll not tell you anything different. Jesus humbled himself and he walked 90 kilometers to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist as an adult. And he asks all of his followers to obey him and be baptized as well. Now, hear me on this. Pastor Stefan has gone to great lengths and mentioned it to you from the front before. Traditionally, we have our baptism services here as a part of our worship services, and it's a highlight for all of us to watch. We know that. He, he, we, it's a chance for us all to be encouraged and to pray for and encourage those who are being baptized, right? It lifts all of us as a community to see God at work in people's lives. It just does. It's, it's kingdom building. But there is no specific instructions in the Bible about exactly how or when or where it should be done, nor even specifically the amount of water that is to be used. As in all things we try here at Southland to mirror as best we can the biblical examples that were given. And that is why we practice immersion here. But notice there is no public gathered around Philip and Ethiopian. They just see some water. Hey, there's some water. Let's do this. And they do it. The last thing we want to do here is impede people who have a desire to follow Christ and be baptized. So not only have we streamlined our process in this, but we want to be available to those of you who would like to explore a different option than our usual in-service kind of service and standard. So if this is you, please contact the church if you'd like to discuss this further, and by all means, lay hold of the baptism booklets that are available to you at the info desk outside our central exit doors here. Our next baptism service, by the way, is planned for November 26th. So you can write that down. Sometimes, though, I've heard believers say this. Can I be a Christ follower without being baptized? And you know what? I hate that question. I just really dislike that question. In fact, I don't even get the question. If baptism is the first thing that Jesus asks us to do, how can we simply ignore it? It's one of those questions like, have you stopped beating your wife yet? No matter how you answer that, you're going to get into trouble, right? Yes, I stopped. Or, no, I haven't stopped yet, right? This is one of those questions. Do not ask that question, can I be a Christ follower without being baptized? Can I be a Christ follower without being obedient? Is maybe a better question. In 1 John, we read, this is the love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. My friends, if you hesitated for any reason to be baptized as an adult, I want to urge you to examine your heart. It's not meant to be burdensome. Ask yourself, why am I hesitating? We need to have the kind of attitude the Ethiopian had who said, look, there's water, let's go. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Not why should I, why shouldn't I? Well, the story ends with the sudden transport of Philip. We really don't know if he literally disappeared, like poof, or quickly walked away or ran away. We don't know. But the Ethiopian did not see Philip again. But we're told the eunuch went on his way, what? 
rejoicing. Rejoicing, a sure sign that God's done some transforming work and the gift of the Holy Spirit has been implanted in him. As I look over this whole story, I'm overwhelmed with the lengths that God will go to in order to just draw one person to himself and realize, as I think about it even further, he's done exactly the same thing for me. And I expect and suspect and would say he's done exactly the same for you. You who follow Christ, there was someone. There was someone who was obedient. There was someone who told you about the good news. Someone listened to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and kept that divine appointment with you. He's done exactly for me and for you what he did for this Ethiopian. And without Philip's obedience to the promptings, this magnificent meeting on this desolate, deserted desert road would never have happened. And in a way, you know, it's enough to know we're going to see that Ethiopian one day in heaven. And then I thought, we're going to meet that Ethiopian in heaven someday. But it made me wonder what kind of influence, what kind of scattering he might have been a part of back in his country. What happened when the queen of Ethiopia said, so, I don't know if he called him, she called him eunuch, but so, whoever you are, so, Ethiopian eunuch, was your, how was your summer vacation? How was your little sojourn up to Jerusalem? What do you think he had to say about that? I bet he told her all about it. The early church historian, his name was Isubius, wrote that the Ethiopian brought the good news to his country and was the founder of a vital church there. So on a whim this week, I looked up the church in Ethiopia, and this is what I found. All of the countries in North Africa are Muslim, except one. Anybody want to hazard a guess at which lone, one lone country in all of North Africa has survived the expansion of Islam? Anybody want to guess which country? Ethiopia. Ethiopia. In fact, Ethiopia was the second region in the entire world to officially adopt Christianity in, as their state sort of sponsored religion or recognized religion in the fourth century AD. And still today, 67% of the population would say they're Christian in a two-to-one margin over those who follow Islam. Of course, that 67% includes all forms under the broad manner, banner of Christianity. Underneath that, some 19, almost 20% of the population are evangelical, and that amounts to 13.7 million people who would believe as we do in the country of Ethiopia. 400,000 of those, as of about five or six years ago, were converts from Islam. Isn't that amazing? But as you might expect, it hasn't been a bed of roses. There's been AIDS, there's been famines. One of the other huge things was, was excuse me, in 1974, a communist regime took over power, and they specifically outlawed evangelistic churches. Not just churches in general, evangelistic churches. Evangelism was sort of outlawed. Any evangelical church was outlawed for about 17 years until that regime was replaced. Not until 1991 were they able to kind of come above ground again and freedom was restored. And there's 13.5 million believers there. Once again, I think, what if Philip had decided that this angel's instructions were just too nutty, too bizarre, too crazy. Who would do that? No sane person would do this. I'm not going down that road in the heat of the day. I'll go tomorrow. I'll go tonight when it gets cooler. What if the girl across the street from where I lived hadn't invited me to her baptism where she shared her testimony before everybody and it led me to ask her questions. How must I be saved? How can I have what you have? I don't understand this. And she answered my questions, and she led me to the Lord that night. You can't begin to tell me for one minute that our public testimony doesn't have, have some kind of influence and some moment of reaching the lost. It reached me. It reached, I'm standing here because a girl across the street took it upon herself with a lot of courage, I expect, to ask someone five years older than she was to come to her baptism. 
We hardly knew each other on a, what our first names were. What if she hadn't asked me? Philip's story illustrates for all of us the adventure of the Christian life, what's supposed to be the adventure of the Christian life. You know, you and I regularly receive leadings from the Holy Spirit. He knows us and he assigns us to be links in a chain of drawing people who are lost in darkness to the light. And to refuse any of these leadings, to be deaf to the assignment, to turn our back, may have eternal results. You and I are in the highest stake endeavor there is on the planet. And each one of us has missions from God. Some are little missions, some of them are bigger, but each assignment matters for that one. We just never know. We don't know what divine appointment might be around the corner for us. And God will ask us to drop everything and cross paths with a lost soul. Maybe our assignment will be very early part of their entire spiritual journey. We'll just sort of sow a few seeds. Or maybe we'll have the privilege of actually leading a person across the line of faith and towards baptism. But it's impossible to do any of this if we don't listen every day, every moment, to the promptings, to the acts of the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your head with me? Right now, I just urge you, if this is your heart today, to tell God right now that you want to be that kind of obedient servant who receives and acts on assignments like Philip did. Even when sometimes they don't make a whole lot of sense, tell God right now, I'm going to show up. I'm going to be a better listener. I'm going to follow what you ask me to do. And then ask him, what chariot are you, am I supposed to be near? Who, who am I supposed to get glued to, joined to? Who are the two or three names that jump to your mind that you deeply care about because they're lost? Sovereign God, Heavenly Father, you are the one who sees all. We see this in this story. You roam the world looking for those who are seeking you. And then you call upon us in this partnership to intersect with them and to join ourselves to them, glue ourselves to them, listen to them and share our story with them in order that even one would be brought into your kingdom. Please forgive us for all the assignments we've missed, and I'm sure I have a multitude of them. Help us to renew the passion today, right now, a renewed commitment to listening to your voice, to reach out to someone who is in need. And we may not even understand that they're in need. We don't have to look for the need. We just have to look for your appointment, moment by moment, to just simply say yes, trusting even when it seems crazy, moving forward, not away, moving forward toward someone rather than away. Father, I pray that you would be at the very center of each of our life's adventure in this. It's the ultimate calling that you've given to every single one of your followers. May we never lose our passionate heart for people who are lost. Thank you for the example from Philip. May we go and do likewise. That is our heart and our prayer before you. We pray in the glorious and mighty name of our Savior, Jesus, and all God's people agreed and said, amen. amen. Thanks so much for your attention this morning. God bless you as you go. Have a great day.